Our scripture today is from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the 22nd chapter, uh, verses 23 through 33. Hear now the word of our God. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob, Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us uh, that your thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are our ways your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high, so much higher are your ways than our ways, and so much higher are your thoughts than our thoughts. We hear you proclaim that about yourself in the book of Isaiah, and we want to take that declaration to heart now because we cannot, because Isaiah 55 is true, we cannot presume to handle your word on either side of this pulpit in a way that fits in accordance with our natural abilities or desires. Father, what is going to happen now in the preaching, in the worship, uh, in preaching and hearing now over your word is supernatural. It's not a human transaction. It is a divine, uh, divinely powered event. And you act to do astonishing things through your word in the power of the Spirit. You, you give the inheritance uh, to those who are being sanctified on the one hand, and you convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment on the other hand, and you move not only to sanctify, but to save the lost. And so we pray for our expectations, uh, for what will happen, and our dependence uh, for your grace uh, for those things to happen. We, we pray that 
that our thoughts would follow after yours and our ways would follow after yours now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we dare not miss the irony. Uh, Just a matter of a few days uh, before Jesus is going to be left alone on the cross to bear the full brunt of all that eternity represents. Here come the Sadducees, juggling the idea of eternity like it was a ball they could afford to drop, treating it, treating the idea of eternity like it's as light as a feather, and they toss it to Jesus like it's a toy. And they do it in the form of a hypothetical. The people, Matthew says, who say in verse 23, the people who say that there is no resurrection, so that's their starting point, then a feign interest. They fake it. And they present Jesus with this elaborate hypothetical. Uh, taking a provision of the Mosaic law on leveret marriage, and they tell this story about a woman who is married and then widowed successively by seven brothers, and then they, they push this question at him at the end. They, they ask in verse 28, here's what, the, what they've been building up to, verse 28 In the resurrection, therefore, and when they use the word resurrection, they're talking about the afterlife or eternity. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. They have come to play. They have come to make light of eternity. But Jesus, there's not going to be a meeting of the minds. Because Jesus hasn't come to play in light of eternity. Jesus has come, and he's in Jerusalem when this passage is happening. He's just a a few days from his crucifixion. He has come to die in light of eternity. And so, friends, before we get into the specifics of the Sadducees' eternity-belittling eternity game, it is very important, I think, to pause and to think more generally about playing games with Jesus. Because there is no way that the Sadducees cornered the market on that. People have been playing games with Jesus throughout the gospel, People have been playing games with Jesus Christ throughout history. People play games with Jesus Christ outside the church, and they play games with Jesus Christ inside the church. But let me me be clear about this. Not every objection to Christianity is a game. I know that. Now, I know as somebody who was converted when I was 19 that some of my objections were games. Some of them were just clever banter. Some of them were escape routes. Some of them were smoke screens that I camouflaged as objections. And that's true for some of you, too. I'm not talking about the genuine, intellectual, important objections to the claims of Jesus Christ. Those are not games. 
But let me say two things about those. Number one, you do know, don't you, if you're a non-Christian who's, who's wrestling with those kind of objections, you do know, don't you, that there are reasoned, thoughtful Christian responses to those objections. You do know that, right? I mean, the likelihood that the objection that you have in your mind was thought up by you and therefore is the killer objection that will, if it could only get onto Twitter or YouTube or the internet, would somehow demolish this so-called false edifice of Christianity, the likelihood that you have a killer objection that there isn't a response for and that people haven't already dealt with head-on is exactly 0.0%. So here's the question, right, for you if you're wrestling with one of these objections. Here's how you'll know it's really an objection and not a smokescreen camouflaged as an objection so you can flee Jesus. You'll actually investigate what that response from Christians is. You'll actually roll up your sleeves. You'll say, I'm not going to be sloppy with eternity. I'm not going to be sloppy with Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it, friends. If you had a new, if you needed to go buy a new dishwasher today, wouldn't you do some research? If you were going to buy a new car today, wouldn't you do some research? Wouldn't you read and think and compare? And yet what I find over and over again as I deal with folks who are non-Christians is they're very content not to really engage the issues so often. And so, friends, the way you'll know that your objection is a real objection and not a smokescreen is you will do your homework. And we would be honored to be able to speak with you about that. There's so many people in our church who have, by God's grace, been moved through those objections and into, uh, into salvation in Christ as they see that the Christian worldview is plausible, that the biblical worldview has answers to these questions. So that's the first thing I want to say, that if, if you're really serious about your objections, you'll follow them up. The Sadducees, of course, are just playing, and I pray that you will not play with eternity. But the second thing I want to say is that I want you to know that Jesus Christ will never play games with you. And I know that because of the cross that's behind me and the table that's in front of me. Jesus Christ never plays games with people. He does not play games with the Sadducees, even though they have come to just bat eternity around like it's a, like a non-thing. And Jesus Christ is present by his spirit this morning in this room and this cross and this table and this word prove to you that he is not going to play games with eternity. He is not going to play games with your eternal destiny. The cross is proof that he shouldered the burdens of the eternal weight of God's righteousness and the eternal worth of God's love and the eternal glory of God. And he invested himself fully all the way to the end. And this table in front of me and in front of you is proof that he takes people seriously. And so, my friends, I just beg of you, 
not to be playing games with Jesus Christ. Here is a a king who gave himself for his people and who gives himself still to his people. Eternity weighs heavy on the mind and heart of Jesus Christ, and so it should on ours as well. Okay, back to the Sadducees. Jesus meets them head on. And with two real hammer blows, if you will, in verse 29. Look at how he responds to them. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. You know, for some people, they can't ever imagine Jesus saying that to anyone. He does. You are wrong. Now he tells them why. And he gives them two two reasons that they're wrong. You are wrong because you know neither, number one, you know neither the scriptures nor, number two, the power of God. So what he's saying to them essentially is, you are wrong, I'll translate that, you are wrong, you dismiss and play games with eternity and you are wrong to do so. And the reason you do so is because you have a small Bible and you have a small God. And a small Bible begets, always begets a small vision of God. And those two things together always beget a small view of the significance of human life. So the first prong of what Jesus says to them, the first charge, is they've got a small Bible. You know neither the scriptures. Let's think about that for a minute. The Sadducees were the sect in first century Judaism that controlled the high priesthood and most of the highest levels of the priesthood. And yet, Jesus is saying, you guys are content with a small Bible. They're religious people. Here's what I want you to see and to feel the irony of. They are outwardly very religious people, but the way they live is with a very small Bible. And it's small, according to Jesus, in two particular senses. Their Bible is too narrow, and they read it too shallowly. Here's what I mean by too narrow. The Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, as authoritative. And though eternity and the resurrection... And life after death, although those themes are present in the Pentateuch, as Jesus is going to show us here in a minute, they are taught, those themes are taught much more emphatically and consistently through the rest of the Old Testament. And what the Sadducees have done is they have said, hey, listen, we're only accepting these books that Moses wrote. You see how they said, they quote Moses in verse 24. Teacher, Moses said, as if Moses were an authority by implication against the teaching that there is an afterlife. Now that's worth thinking about. I know you don't think of yourself as a Sadducee, but the Sadducee's error is rampant because what they're doing is they're privileging certain parts of the Bible at the expense of the other parts of the Bible. They have a canon within the canon. And maybe it starts to sound familiar if, for example, you think that the red letters, which, by the way, are not in the original, that the red letters, you do know that, right? 
that the red letters are more important than the rest of the Bible, or that Paul is more important than Peter, or that the New Testament is to be privileged over against the Old Testament. Friends, do you divide your Bible up? Are you the authority of what God has said? You see, the way that the Sadducees get out of or try to get out of the the Bible's teaching on eternity is they take words out of God's mouth. And is that not exactly what is happening in our culture? From within the church. God didn't say that. Who does that sound like, by the way? Sounds like the beginning of Genesis 3. Friends, this is uh, very important. To not have a small Bible. Because a small Bible is the act of somebody who believes that they are their own authority. That's what the Sadducees are doing. They are deciding what God has said. Or what he hasn't said. So friends, I want you to consider very seriously whether your Bible is even narrower than the Sadducees. Do you even accept the five books of Moses? If you're non-Christian... Right, and you reject the authority of God's word and you close your eyes to it and you don't open it and you don't think about what it says, then guess where your Bible is. You have become your own inspired text. You are your own little bee Bible. And there, that is no way to live. Are you the Lord of your conscience or is God the Lord of your conscience? The Sadducees are claiming that they are obeying God, but they're doing, they're holding their position by rejecting God's word. So that's what brings us to the next level of Jesus' critique against the Sadducees. Their Bible isn't only narrow. They they have a small Bible, and it's small not only because it's narrow, but also because they read it shallowly. The narrowness of their Bible is only half of their problem. And this is what, it's the shallowness of the, of the way that they read the Bible that they do have, that they do claim to accept. And this is what Jesus shows them when he quotes from Exodus 3, 6 in verse 31. Look at what he does. He says, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? And then he quotes a verse from memory. This is Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. This is how God identifies himself to Moses at the unburning bush. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Now, now you got to see what Jesus is doing there. It's, It's amazingly profound. In its original context, this is how the Lord, the verse that Jesus quotes, is how the Lord identifies himself to Moses at Mount Sinai, okay, at the foot of Mount Sinai, at the unburning bush. Fifteen centuries before Jesus has this exchange with the Sadducees. But notice how deeply Jesus reads this text. And this just blew me away. As I thought about this and thought about this this week, 
the thing that just staggered me was how high Jesus' expectations are for our reading of scriptures. Because what Jesus does, according to him, is he shows us that Exodus, in Exodus 3.6, God is teaching us about the resurrection. He's proclaiming that he is the God of the afterlife, the God of eternity. You see, at least seven centuries after Abraham's death, and at least six after Isaac's, and at least five after Jacob's, here is, G, here is, here is the God of the universe saying to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Not I was their God, like they lived, while they lived on the earth, I was their God, and now that they're dead, I'm not their God anymore. No, God is saying uh, centuries after their deaths, each of which are recorded in Genesis, he's saying, I still am their God. I still am their God, meaning that they still are. They're alive, which can only mean that their death on earth, that the end of their life on earth, was not the end of their life. Are you following? That is amazingly subtle and amazingly profound at the same time. All of them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what Jesus is saying is that when God identifies himself to Moses as the God of the presently, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what he is declaring about himself is that his covenant love and his faithfulness to his people cannot be defeated by death. And so there must be an eternity in which God's people dwell and in which judgment happens. That's staggering. Now notice one other thing, one other measure of the bigness of the Bible that Jesus sets before the Sadducees. Did you notice? This, is, this, is, this also might have uh, been missed. Verse 31, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to whom? To you by God. To you? By God, wait, wait, wait a second, what do you mean? This was said, you know, and originally this is the Lord speaking to Moses. And then Moses records this exchange with the Lord in the book of Exodus. Which obviously he would have done before he died. So the book of Exodus is written before Israel enters the promised land. And yet Jesus is saying to the Sadducees, hey, guess what? God was saying and is saying this to you 15 centuries after he said it to Moses. You see, what Jesus is affirming there, friends, is something very important, and it, and it, and it results in a massive obligation for each one of us. Jesus is saying something about the Bible here that the Bible says about itself in every nook and cranny which is that it is living and active. And it is living and active. This is not an encyclopedia that collects. If all you think about the Bible 
is that it is, a, it is a spiritual encyclopedia, a history book that is full of true facts and true promises and true statements about God, then you are handling a Bible that the Bible says doesn't exist. Because what the Bible says it is, is the living word of God. So that it is not static. God speaks And every time we open the Bible, God himself is addressing us personally. That's how Jesus can say, have you not read Exodus 3.6? God said it to you. Just like he's saying this morning, you know who he's saying Exodus 3.6 to? To us. God is saying from this text, in the power of the Holy Spirit, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, 20 centuries after Jesus' conversation with the Sadducees, 35 centuries after I said it to Moses. And that is supposed to break in upon each of us that God is God, not of the dead, but of the living. That at the end of our lives, everyone is going to appear before God. We're either going to receive his blessing for eternity or we're going to receive his judgment for eternity. And the urgency, the nearness of eternity, you see what that means? That means that if God is addressing us about the reality of eternity and the afterlife and either being with him or away from his presence, then that means that eternity is the most urgent consideration upon every single one of us at this very moment. God never stops saying that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because it never stops being true. Oh, that is awesome. That imposes such a high level of obligation upon us, friends. We are bound to worship, and none of us can claim ignorance of eternity, especially when a text like Matthew 22, uh, 32, and the Exodus 6, 3 that Jesus is quoting there, especially when that sings harmony, if you will, with what God has already placed in our hearts, according to the book of Ecclesiastes. God has put eternity in our hearts. Friends, a small Bible is deadly. You must not have a small Bible from beginning to end. The Bible makes it clear that the measure of your life is not the dash between the date of your birth and the day of your death. That is not the measure of your life. Your life is not bracketed. That's the measure of your life on earth. But the measure of your life on earth is not the measure of your life. Jesus says in John chapter 5, he says this, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear Jesus's, his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That's the end of everyone. No one avoids that outcome. Friends, I wonder if you take it that seriously. 
I wonder if you think about death the way Jesus is teaching us to think about it, the way the rest of the Bible teaches us to think about it, which is that death is the closing of opportunity. And this is, why, this is where I feel particularly this is where I feel particular urgency this morning for you and I to revisit again, for those of us who are Christians, to revisit again, to be awed by the prospect of eternity, the gospel. Friends, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, we are of all people most to be pitied. We need to feel that the stakes of the gospel are eternity. We need to stand before the prospect of eternity and be in awe and be moved by it. If the gospel is only about making this life better, therapeutically improving our slog through existence, then that is not the gospel. The Son of God did not die to help us slog through our life. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again because of the prospect of eternity. Death is not the end. It is the closing of opportunity and the opening of eternity. And so, friends, I plead with you, do not, do not act as if you had more time. Do not act as if you could come to Christ tomorrow. Do not approach the gospel as if you could postpone the summons of the living God. I mean, when I say it that way, doesn't that sound crazy? When, when you remember that the gospel is God's call and summons to a Savior who is rich in mercy, who is patient, who is long-suffering, who is full of love to the extent that he was willing to identify not only with your flesh but also with your feelings and to stand in your place under the wrath of God and to submit himself willingly, freely, completely, without reserve to stand between you and the consequences of your sin when you remember that. How could you possibly want to put him off? to spend eternity with him? I want that. Do you? And see, if you have a small Bible, if you're your own Bible, then eternity is going to be a non-thing to you. Please don't be sloppy with it. Which brings us to the second blow. Jesus says they not only have a small Bible, but they've got a small God. They don't know, Jesus says, the power of God. By denying the resurrection and the relevance and the urgency of the afterlife and eternity for anyone but God himself, the Sadducees, according to Jesus, the Sadducees are denying the most basic truths about who God is. And there are two things that they deny, that I want to zero in on. First, that God is, they, they deny that God is more powerful than death. And secondly, they deny that God is more wonderful than anything in life. So let's do the first one. They deny that God is more powerful than death. But Jesus shows us, by quoting Exodus 3.6, 
right? That, that while God's people die, they cannot lose him in their deaths. <laughs> and those not his people cannot escape him in theirs. If he is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, those with whom he's in covenant, he is also the God to whom Esau and Ishmael and everyone not his people must answer. Just as Jesus proved, or just as the Lord proved to Moses in Exodus 3.6 regarding Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his covenant love and faithfulness to his own. I mean, just, this is just such a powerful implication of what Jesus is reminding us of. His covenant love and faithfulness to his own can never and will never be defeated by death. Turn with me to Psalm 103. Let me show you an illustration of this. Uh, It's on page 502 in the Pew Bible, Psalm 103. Verses 14 through 17. Now, this is very familiar, I know, to many of you. Psalm 103 is a precious psalm. Let's just follow the logic, because David is setting out a contrast between man... And his man who is fragile and transitory, man who's made of dust and who is transitory, flourishes like a field, a contrast between the life of man and God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And notice what he says. So, so verse 14, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows that we, we are clods into whom he breathed life. As for man... His days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. Now, if that's as far as you went, you might say, well, Mike, doesn't that prove the Sadducees' point? You live, you live for a while, and then you die, and that's it. Well, the answer is no. That's not it, as we'll see in verse 17. But I want you to see that the perspective in verses uh, 15 and 16 is an earthly perspective on man. What is the heavenly perspective on man's life? Look at verse 17. Notice how it begins with a but. In other words, there's more to this story. A man who comes from dust who flourishes like a flower of the field and then just seems to vanish in his death. And there's no trace of him. That's what it looks like from an earthly perspective. But from a heavenly perspective. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting. Now see, that's talking about the origin of, or the source of God's covenant faithfulness. And it is, and, and its duration. It, it, eternity past. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting. It's amazing. But notice, that's not all David says. It's from everlasting to everlasting. Okay, so, so 
that makes sense that God is the eternal one. So if he has steadfast love, he's going to have it from eternity and he'll necessarily have it for all eternity. But notice that's not all that David is saying because he goes farther. It's from everlasting, that covenant love, to everlasting on those who fear him. You see what David is saying? He is saying, my friends, that God's steadfast love for his people not only is rooted, not only has an eternal root in eternity past, but also bears eternal fruit in eternity future on his covenant people, which means that they live beyond the grave. Because God spends eternity, according to David, showering and showing his covenant love, his steadfast love to his people. So from the heavenly perspective, right, that that steadfast love of the Lord, it cannot be everlastingly to those who fear him unless the end of their life on earth is not the end of their life. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, you and I think, and it's true, if you're in Christ today, um, the, the magnitude, uh, when we're thinking clearly, right, and feeling clearly, the magnitude of God's love and his faithfulness to us, when we actually stop and pay attention to it, it breaks us. It's so glorious. It's so big. And that's on this side of glory. We have those experiences on this side of eternity. We we can recognize it by God's grace. We can recognize it. We taste it. We smell the aroma. But friends, our greatest experiences on this side of our deaths, of God's faithfulness and glory and goodness, even if you add them all up together, they are a drop in an endless ocean. And Jesus is saying to the Sadducees, you know, you play games with eternity. You're saying saying that God is weak. That God's covenant love is limited. That God's promises have an expiration date. You don't know his power. And the second thing they say about The second truth about God that they deny is that God is more wonderful than anything in life. You see, the way they think about eternity is the way that most of us think about eternity. See, their hypothetical says, okay, so wait a second, Jesus. So if we obey what Moses says about lever at marriage, you know, if 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 a man dies and leaves his wife childless, then the brothers in that family... Uh, need to need to raise up a, a heritage for that widow uh, by taking her into their home and fathering a child with her. If we obey Moses, uh, then then in the end, um, where's that leave us? I mean, eternity. Then there's this massive problem. If we obey Moses, then then when this woman gets into the afterlife that you say you believe in, she's going to have seven husbands, right? So where does she go? And Jesus says, you don't get it. They think that eternity is simply the extension of this present life. 
they think that it's just more of the same with an unending vision, that, that, that there's just this quantitative, you know, the amount of life expands, ad infinitum. But you see, yes, that's true, right? Quantitatively, eternity is a lot longer. But there is something else that Jesus, I think, is wanting to get across to us. It's exactly what the Bible, the rest of the Bible gets across to us, which is that when we think about the afterlife, when we think about the new heavens and the new earth, friends, if our category is that's just going to be boring because it's more of the same endlessly, that the horizon never is reached, and we just go on and on and on in the same thing, then we don't understand what God is promising for his people and Christ is achieving for his people at the cross. And that is not simply a quantitative amount of life, but a qualitative, infinite qualitative expansion. To be with God. To have him as the one for whom we were made, satisfying and fulfilling us to experience him as the treasure of all treasures to experience him as the goodness beneath all other goodnesses, as the goodness that alone, who alone can satisfy us, that every other goodness and every other treasure we experience is just a faint aroma, a distant shadow, a silhouette of. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That's why, that's why we're not going to be married to one another in heaven. Jesus says we're going to be like angels in heaven. Angels in heaven... Like angels in heaven, in what sense? It's an odd comparison. Is, is Jesus' only point that since the angels aren't married in heaven, we're not going to be married in heaven? I don't think that's right. I think there's more. It's at least that. But, but to draw a comparison between us and angels also brings into play something much more profound in the Bible, which is that, is that angels were not made in the image of God. We were made in the image of God. So there's, there's, a, there's another deeper comparison that is being made between us and angels. And here's what I think it is. Anytime you see an angel in heaven in the scriptures, when the Holy Spirit is pleased to reveal and show us what the life of an unfallen angel is like in heaven, do you know what the angel's doing? Think Isaiah 6, worshiping. Think Revelation 5 or Revelation 4 and 5, bowing before the throne, exalting in the Lamb, praising and adoring God, fulfilling, in other words, fulfilling the whole purpose of their creaturehood. Because God will be all in all. Friends, a small Bible, this all matters because a small Bible begets a small vision of God, which in turn begets a small dash-length vision of human life. Your life, my life. You have a small Bible, you have a small God. If you have a small God, then your life doesn't matter that much. The ultimate significance of your life and my life doesn't matter that much. But together, those, those three counterfeit miniatures, you know what their greatest offense is? They beget a small vision of the cross. Because what Jesus sets before us, my friends, is a big Bible, a big vision of God, a big vision of human life, and therefore a very big vision of his cross. A vision of his cross that is filled up with the weightiness of eternity. That's the true and ultimate stakes of the cross this morning, friends. 
our eternal destiny. You know, it's very interesting to me that in the flow of Jesus' ministry, this is when this conversation happens. I think that what's happening is that these conversations come up, and I think all of these, these remaining passages in, in Matthew 22, I think they're all sharpening our vision to understand the stakes of the cross. And in this particular passage, what is being emphasized is that the stakes of the cross are eternal. That Jesus goes to the cross in light of the, the worth of eternity and the stakes of eternity. The gospel's good news is so good, it cannot be filled up in this life. Eternity is the what and the why of the cross. Eternity is the what of the cross. Here's what I mean. It's the nature of Jesus' work at the cross. This work is all about eternity because you know what happened at the cross? What happened is the great judgment day, the great future judgment day that God had threatened and promised throughout the Bible was brought by God's grace into breaking into our world and to our age. And it was, there was a tribunal, Calvary was a tribunal that God established. And that day of judgment eternal judgment was brought forward 2,000 years ago, breaking into history. And Jesus assumed at Calvary the eternal liability of all his people, willingly assumed that eternal liability so that he, in the place of everyone who would trust him, was willingly, so that he might be willingly consumed by the wrath of God against our sins. That was an eternal judgment that God poured out upon him on the cross. Eternity broke into the present there. And what that means, friends, is that when God poured out his wrath upon Jesus, when Jesus rendered himself submissive to that judgment as the substitute of his people. And and when he said, it is finished, then that means that God rendered an eternal finished verdict at Calvary over the eternal destiny of everyone who would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And that that shockwave, where the shockwave of that finished verdict is still reverberating all the way into this room this morning. Eternity was and is the what of the cross. There was an eternally satisfied verdict that was rendered in favor of God's people at that cross. And that verdict stands as a warning and an invitation to those who are still outside Christ this morning. A warning in the sense that you cannot escape God's judgment because the Son of God did not. And the invitation, the summons to come and take shelter, come and rest fully in the verdict that God has already rendered. So the cross is the what, excuse me, eternity is the what of the cross, but it's also the why of the cross. It's the goal of Jesus' work there to purchase and qualify a people for eternity with God. Think about that. Eternity in the holy presence of God. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Eternity for all of Christ's people. Eternity celebrating the beauty of God. That's why Jesus went to the cross. 
eternity being swallowed up by the glory of God. That's why Jesus went to the cross to purchase that future for his people. Eternity beholding the face of God. Eternity being kept in the love of God. Eternity being adopted into the family of God. Eternity enjoying and loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is why Jesus went to the cross. That's the the why of the cross. Friends, Jesus lived and died and rose again because he believed with all his heart and he knew that this life is a very narrow isthmus, just like John Wesley says in our reflection quote. It's a very narrow isthmus between two endless oceans, hell on the one side and heaven on the other side. That's what this life is. It's a narrow isthmus. And we live our whole lives on this narrow isthmus. And because it is surrounded on both sides by those endless oceans, this isthmus is very important. And what we do in it is very important. We measure the cross by its stakes. And there are only two possibilities, and both of them will be filled up by the magnitude of the cross. Hell will be filled with the magnitude of the cross. Because in hell... The hearts of men will be haunted by the realization, haunted eternally by the loss. And the cross will be the measure of their loss. Eternity spent away from the presence of the Lord who was willing to and did die in the place of sinners. That's the measure of the greatest torment of hell to be denied eternal fellowship by your own rebellion, to be denied eternal fellowship with that God. And the cross is also the measure. uh, Well, the cross, the magnitude of the cross will fill heaven. It's going to fill heaven. Because heaven will, the cross in heaven will be the measure of our gain. We will never forget it. We will never neglect it. We will never overlook it. We will always be praising the lamb who was slain and our hearts will be gladdened. Our hearts will be strengthened. Our hearts will be propelled and filled up with love for the God that we, that we, undeserving as we are because of our rebellion against him, that we have had purchased for us a future, an endless future with the God who was willing to give himself in the place of our sins to purchase us. Friends, a big cross begets a big table because the benefits of the cross Jesus pours out upon those already his own through this table. Do not have a small view of the table. If you have a big Bible and therefore a big vision of God and therefore a big vision of of the significance and the ultimate meaningfulness of your life, you'll have a big vision of the cross, and a big vision of the cross will always beget and must beget a big vision of the table this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now that these stakes would press in upon our hearts. Do not, I pray, let us be complacent or unmoved. Do not let us be in control. Overthrow our resistance, overthrow our reluctance, overthrow our disinterest, and graciously fascinate us and 
exhilarate us and thrill us again, make it, make it a bracing wonder to us that the grace and love of God are offered to us this morning and grant that we might come with hearts full of gratitude and joy, repentance and faith, we pray in Jesus' name.